All right, so today we are continuing into our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We have been, uh, for four weeks, this will be the fifth week now, that we have been reviewing uh, all the elements because we had gotten up to 72, I believe, uh, messages to get through elements zero through six. So I figured with all the new people that have joined our church, with the fact that I doubt that a lot of you are re-listening to the podcast and studying it diligently and an hour a week or something like that or whatever. I just thought it'd be kind of good to, uh, to review it. And then the other thing I hope to do for, with this is just post it as a separate series on the website so that you can use it uh, for helping people come to Christ and use it as a basis of Bible studies that are gospel-centered. Uh, I would really encourage you to pray and seek God for a lifestyle whereby you're always got at least one person you're having a Bible study with and you're helping them come to Christ. Um, I have, you know, had the joy since uh, being asked to start a campus ministry in 1979 of usually having several of those going on at a time, but in my first five years of being a Christian or so, I, I usually, you know, tried to have one or so going uh, and I would really encourage you to, to look for the opportunities where you work, where you go to school, in your neighborhood. There really are people that God is drawing to the kingdom. That's another thing is just ask God to, to open your eyes to the signs of his drawing people into the kingdom and, and go back and study these gospel presentations from that perspective. Because if you can learn to uh, kind of recognize what the Holy Spirit's doing in people's lives, the truth is, even though Christians use phrases like, oh, I led so-and-so to Christ, that's just nonsense. We, uh, no one can come to, you know, to Jesus unless the Father draws them. The Holy Spirit uh, was sent to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to uh, work in people's hearts to start getting getting them to think about their conscience, think about eternal things, uh, think about why am I here, etc. It's the Holy Spirit that draws people to Christ. What we are really is kind of like doctors and uh, may, uh, what, do you, what do you call the people? Who, uh, what Midwives. midwives. Uh, you know, we're kind of like a midwife or a doctor who kind of you know, works with uh, family to make sure their prenatal diet diet is good and they're eating the right things and they're getting the right amount of sleep and they're hanging around the right environments and and so forth to maximize the ability for what God is doing on the inside to continue to develop uh, as healthy as possible. And that's really the, the, the art of helping people come to Christ. If you can kind of get away from that sinner's prayer one time only view of coming to Christ, uh, really, you know, the, what you want to do is learn how to come alongside someone and, and kind of just walk with them into the kingdom of God and help them and guide them and give, fo focus them on what to read. And, and uh, obviously the scriptures can, can, can do the work. Um, it does because the Holy Spirit is involved in just like in the natural, a, a child grows in a sack of water. Amniotic fluid is 98.5% water or so. In the spiritual, someone develops in a, a sack of the Holy Spirit. And keeping that person in the atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is moving uh, during the time that God is drawing them 
is the number one thing you can do. Befriend them, bring them to church, get them involved where there's, there's worship, where the Spirit of God is present two and three and four times a week. People will not grow with uh, worship and that sort of thing only once a week or so. They actually have now, in the studies, uh, various organizations like Barna and um, um, Gallup do because they study the church, and Barna actually publishes a, a report once a year about the spiritual condition of the church in, in America and so forth. They've actually started defining, uh, differentiating between practicing Christians and part-time Christians. And they say uh, one aspect of practicing Christians is they're generally in church about 105 or more times a year, generally an average of twice a week or more. And uh, part-time Christians are generally in, in church somewhere between 20 and 55 times a year. And, um, you know, one of the ways you, of course, can maximize that is, is uh, live, you know, if you're single, live with some Christian guys. If you're, uh, if you're a single lady, live with some Christian ladies. Uh, extended households living near each other so that you can fellowship and worship and pray together more frequently. All of those things can facilitate being part of the body of Christ as a way of life. All right, so let's get into today's Today we are uh, actually reviewing element four, which actually includes three subjects. The major subject of it is the historical narrative of Israel, which, uh, and we are going to look at warnings of eternal judgment. And uh, um, before that, I'm going to actually summarize elements one through four uh, a little better uh, once again. And I'm going to call that clarifying infinite gap. So uh, if you're looking at your outline, Roman numeral one gives us the eight elements that, that would be essential to the gospel. Element zero was, uh, uh, we were able to review it in one week. I think it was originally given as three or four weeks of introduction. Four weeks ago, uh, we looked at that. Three weeks ago, we looked at the fact that everyone has a worldview that's inevitable from the fact that we're created in God's image, and therefore everyone is inescapably religious. There is no one you can talk to that is not asking questions in their mind and heart about who or what is ultimately real. We listed the three things there under Roman numeral five on your outline. Do humans have innate value? Or wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, what is the intrinsic nature of man, including does man have innate value in a moral nature? And uh, what is, you know, how should men treat their fellow man? How, what kind of economic systems, government systems, what kind of responsibility do we have to our neighbor? Uh, you know, it's interesting that almost all religions have some version of the golden rule, even non-theistic religions. You know, Confucius, who was more of a philosopher than a, a theologian, he didn't really speculate on whether there was a god or not, uh, very into ancestor veneration and so forth uh, basically teaching principles of wisdom much like the Greek uh, Epicureans would have or Stoics and uh, they they still had uh, all those expressions of worldviews have a, a kind of version of the golden rule uh, let's see then three weeks ago we also looked at the essential attributes of God what is God like and we defined the non-communicable attributes of God, the, one that we can't, the ones we cannot catch, with the communicable attributes of God. Now, 
two things you want to be aware of with most people you're dealing with there is most people, it's part of our fallen nature, and it's part of the current world system that we're in, the current cultural milieu or the current zeitgeist of our time. Most people, even confessing Christians, when it comes to the non-communicable attributes of God, they've reduced God to a much smaller being than he is. So that's rampant, in the, especially in, in versions of Christianity that go by Bible-believing that would call themselves evangelical or fundamentalist. The God they think of is less than the God of the Bible, especially when it comes to his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his sovereign providential actions in your life. So <clears throat> helping people um, pray a sinner's prayer when in fact they're praying to a God who is still in their heart much less than the biblical God is really not helping them much. In fact, it could be harming them more than it's helping them. You know, we're in a situation where there's the real possibility that the church, which is supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth, is more the pillar and support of deception in our culture at this time. I believe it's gone that far, and I don't believe I'm over-exaggerating the situation at all. I believe that in many ways, the, the diminished lifestyle coming out of the d- diminished uh, theology in, in terms of the person of God and the gospel and many other reduced reductionist views of Christianity that are so rampant in the so-called Bible-believing Christianity of our day are more hindering people from coming to Christ than helping them come to Christ. So um, even many seeker-sensitive churches do studies that admit uh, that the, you know, the fruit that we have is, doesn't last. And Jesus clearly said, I called you to bear fruit that remains. If someone doesn't walk uh, in a way where they're becoming progressively sanctified, progressively more knowledgeable, progressively more wise, growing in the presence of God in the depth of their relationship, growing in obedience to all the things that his word teaches us to live as a lifestyle, if that progression isn't happening, then there become some real questions if there's been a conversion and if we're actually as a church doing them any good. Hopefully we get that by now. Uh, Roman numeral five, two weeks ago, we looked at the essential attributes of man and we approached it from two different points of view. One is if you break it down to, uh, to world views, does man have an ethical nature or morally predisposed? Is, does man have innate value? And is, is heredity or environment nature or nurture, as they call it, more responsible for who people become, which one is more formative. Now, one of the things you want to know about that, especially in terms of the first two questions, is man have a basic moral propensity toward good or evil? And is man have innate value? Fallen men are, again, inescapably religious and inescapably deceived in those ideas, so they have views of the nature of man that are wrong. got to let that sink in a little bit. Anyone you're trying to pray for to come to Christ, help come to Christ, 
will have uh, an underestimation of how depth, how the depth of man's sin and the exact nature of it. And if you've grown up in a legalistic antinomian environment where you've made issues of sin uh, shallow things of external behavior, such as do you have a beer or smoke a cigar or wear your hair long or, uh, you know, uh, that, or wear makeup or something, uh, that's going to even more hinder a person from really understanding the depths of man's sin of rebellion and pride and independence and uh, critical spirit toward others and coveting and on and on. So uh, that's important to understand is that part of what you're doing is you're helping people come to Christ. And so if you, I hope you're starting to catch on with the fact that uh, some of the best people to help come to Christ are people who think they are Christians, but really are, it's quite questionable whether they are. And that's really been the, been the essence of Grace Christian Fellowship's ministry. So you really want to know this gospel stuff. You really want to know it, and you really want to examine your own life with these things all the time, as the Bible tells us. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. We then looked at the attributes of man expressed more in a biblical way, that we're created in God's image, we're created for an eternal purpose, and we're created fallen. And we looked at seven aspects of man's fallen nature that are a little bit deeper than, uh, uh, you know, whether you wear makeup or not. All right. Last week, we uh, reviewed the Ten Commandments, and we reviewed the fact that there are multiple purposes for God's law, that the Ten Commandments are expressed and defined in various places and formats throughout Scripture including the uh, hypothetical case laws called statutes or ordinances that are basically how you should apply the law. And those are in both testaments. And all of the commandments and the statutes and ordinances about the commandments are repeated in the Gospels and the Epistles. So the antinomian uh, Christianity of our day that basically says because we're under grace and not under law, the law is not important anymore is just completely deceived and wrong. And Jesus anticipated that, so the very first thing he addresses after the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, he then goes right away into, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And I actually came to put them into force. I actually came to, for the first time, allow my people not to be lawbreakers, but to have an inner desire and a power and ability and grace to be law keepers, to be covenantally faithful. That's the great covenant that we receive in Christ. So uh, we looked at gospel purposes of the law as our tutor to lead us to Christ, and that's not a one-time thing only. Uh, If you've never worked through, we have a, a... a devotional book called Note to Self by Joe Thorne, which he has about a nice nine or ten uh, page uh, review of the gospel at the, it, in the introduction of the book or preface. I'm not sure if it's in the introduction or preface. Then he has a nice little article, ten pages or so, about how to use the gospel to preach the gospel to yourself and bring yourself under conviction. Because what you want to always be doing is seeing your greater need for grace. 
Always. You want to see the futility of self-help salvation. You know, one of the most scary things, if you really understand scriptures and Christianity and the gospel at all, is that the number one type of, of Christian book that sell today are self-help books that are not Christian uh, fundamentally. <laughs> so uh, that's a little scary if you really think about it. Christian bookstores are filled with lots of self-psychology uh, that grew out of the self-psychology movement of the, at the turn of the beginning of the 20th century. Rollo May, Carlos Rogers, and Christians always kind of get on board a few generations later with what the world's saying. Well, in a time when the church is declining. So, uh, we looked at three ongoing purposes of the law, and then we looked at what antinomianism is versus theonomy. If you've never studied that subject, uh, see John, myself, and we can recommend to you some good books to get started uh, with that. I would recommend, especially, uh, although they're a little meaty, uh, Rusash Rushduni's uh, Institutes of Biblical Law and His Law and Society. So, let's flip over today. Shoot, that took me a little lot longer than I wanted to. Today, we are going to uh, say this, first of all, that the reason I just summarized Essentials Elements 1, 2, 4 again, and the reason I'm really trying to make sure that everyone that sits in our pews has the light starting to come on, so we don't leave people uh, in the dust, you might say, is you have to have an ongoing walk with God where the, the depth and the distance of the gap between who God is and who we are as fallen human beings is getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your mind so that you are constantly more aware of your own inability to judge jump the gap because that's the essence of all religions outside of Christ is man's uh, self-efforts to save himself performance-based religion all religions break down to some form of worshiping the creature rather than the creator and usually therefore worshiping man in man's abilities, in man's potentialities. And, you know, the, the number one doctrine of our culture today is believe in yourself. <laughs> I hope you would never advise anyone, especially your children, to believe in yourself. Because there's a great deal of difference between having confidence in what you can do in Christ and believing in yourself. There's a great deal of, there's miles apart between I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and uh, I believing in yourself. I looked deep within myself and what I saw was frightening. <laughs> so, um, all right, so that should lead you to understand the necessity of being rescued or delivered. The Greek word that can, is usually translated in English Bibles, rescued or delivered, in, in many places in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. I've listed a couple of them there for you in Galatians and Colossians. That the same thing is in Ephesians 2.5 and for, so forth. Um, 
If you look at all the best English translations, and I did it for three translations, then five, then I expanded it all the way to 30 or so translations, about half of them use the word rescue, and about half of them use the word deliver. Anytime you see something like that, you know that it means both those things, and it's hard to choose one word. But the essence of being rescued or being delivered is... You know, I like to tell my, the story of my favorite book, or at least one of my favorite books when I was a kid, one that I read many times called The Night the Dykes Broke, a story of uh, uh, the, when the dykes broke in the mid-50s in Holland, and people woke up to water rushing in their house, and it was too late to get out of the house. By the t there were, they didn't have the kind of warning systems we might have for a tornado to, today and so forth, and so they they were already on the second floor and had no choice but to go into the attic and then no choice but to break through the attic to the peak of the roof. And you either get rescued or you don't get rescued, but you have no possibility of saving yourself. You know, if you throw yourself into the Atlantic Ocean, you, you uh, freeze to death in a matter of a few minutes in the northern Atlantic. So uh, you wouldn't be able to make it they wouldn't have been able to make it to higher ground swimming or no, no one could have. So it's really important that you get that because that will deliver you from this kind of like what you need is a little churching up. And you might need some counseling. You, could, you probably do need counseling. I think everybody does. But you need gospel-centered, biblically-based counseling, not a little reforming. You don't need someone to come in and help you rearrange the furniture and dust. You need to have someone give you the power of a new life that only God can do through the gospel. You need to knock the house down, root, root out the foundation, and lay a new foundation to start over. Uh, God doesn't make all new things, but he does make all things new. All right, so let's move on to point B of today, that uh, the New Testament gospel presentations always warn of the day of judgment. Always. Now, this is important because, so you know, the number one thing that the people claimed in the time of Christ was, uh, the, if you looked at all, all the sects that were, some of us are studying in the church history class, and you look at who the Pharisees were, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Herodotians, and the Essenes, the Pharisees had the most influence on the people. It was a similar situation very much to today when uh, people in a time of decline, in a time where there's not much vision and there's not much movement of God and so forth, what people will always do during a time like that, is they will go towards so-called biblically more conservative directions, but they'll go towards performance-based ones. That's the essence of fallen man, because performance-based still allows you to keep your prideful sin nature at the root. So most people will see through the, you know, like today we have in what's called mainstream Christianity, the majority of Roman Catholics, the vast majority of Roman Catholics, the vast majority of, of Protestants 
are theologically liberal that followed when we talk about the modernist, fundamentalist uh, debate. They followed the assumptions of the modernists, such as uh, anti-supernatural worldview. There's no angels, demons, uh, eternal judgment, spirit of God, no miracles, nobody rises from the dead, there's no virgin birth. Uh, and these stories of the Bible are not historically accurate. They're just myths that tell us lessons, like Aesop's fables. And for some reason, they will hold on and persist to, uh, these are, for some reason, they're better myths than Aesop's myths. So we can still go to buildings that are based on it and have services that are have some historical uh, vestiges of, of this way of thinking. And uh, when we've thrown out the basic core ideas of it altogether, that's what modernist Christianity is. It's humanism with a little bit of Christian veneer thrown in. And during times like that, that's what the Sadducees were as well. That's what the Herodotians were. Uh, those types of parties will have great hope that if we just get a more godly government, in their view of godly government, that, that robs from the rich and gives to the poor, Robin Hood government, uh, you know, and uh, penalizes those who keep their families together and penalizes those who work harder. And if we can just be fairer to everybody, then we'll make a better world. So many people kind of see the folly of all that, and they go toward the more conservative views, which the Pharisees embraced, which tend to be not uh, tend to be very performance based. A lot of religion, a great description of that way of thinking is in Second uh, Timothy three one through five. If you've never memorized those verses, I couldn't probably quote the first four verses exactly, but it talks about how people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, irreconcilable, which means like high divorce rate. Families falling apart, uh, you know, having to have longer and longer legal contracts to buy a house or anything because people don't keep their covenants and so forth. Uh, all these characteristics. And then it, it'll, but it's interesting, it's not talking about these people being irreligious. It most clearly says that they hold to forms of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And that's the power to recreate, the power to regenerate, the power of the gospel. And so they moralize you to death, but they don't empower you. That's why our slogan as a church, one of our many slogans, uh, acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow, is the essence of what this whole series is about. In the gospel, God accepts you where you are, even though there's no reason that he should, except for his mercy and grace. But he doesn't leave you like that. He, you know, that song, Just As I Am, is without one plea, is a great place to speak to, to people at. But he doesn't leave them there. <laughs> Because that wouldn't be good news at all, would it? All right, so uh, in the scriptures, there's always an impending warning of judgment. 
Now, I got into all that, the, the tribes of current religion to say this. None of the tribes of current religion like the idea of a day of judgment very much. It's not popular. It's not cool. It won't build big churches. But there are no gospel presentations in the Bible that don't have that. So we need to kind of quit giving the, you know, one, one of the things that we really got to get clear is that in our so-called fundamentalist, evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity, I went into all that discussion to say this, the, people, the conservative people who were influenced by the Pharisees thought that's what they were. And that's why the scripture labors out of Isaiah, and Christ quotes that in, in his parable giving in Matthew 13 and the corresponding version in Mark 4 and so forth, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, which means worthlessness, foolishness do they worship me, teaching as their precepts and doctrines the teachings of man. That is, teachings that, are, that go well with man's fallen nature. And I'm not trying to be a nasty guy, but unfortunately that is the message of most conservative churches today. And the gospel is not that. And hopefully we're getting clear on that. Now, one of the things that, 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 that happens, happened in the day of Christ, and the time period he walked, and it's very rampant now, is it's not cool and it's not popular to talk about a coming judgment. But the problem is, it, it's very biblical. And if you look at any move of God throughout church history, you'll see that was a primary idea that was being preached in that movement. Because that's why the, the modernists go so hard in undermining uh, creationism because if there's no creation then you won't have to give an account to a judge so even when Paul in Acts 17 was talking to the Athenians who had no monotheistic view they were completely polytheist and humanist and a weird mixture of the two much like a lot of people are today um even then, he spoke about that God has appointed a day when he will judge the thoughts and deeds of man through a man, Jesus Christ, whom he's appointed to do this judgment. Um, and he furnished proof of it by raising him from the dead. Now, that's not popular, to, but, you know, I had a practice when I was in college that if I had to take a biology class or whatever and they started talking about creation versus evolution and it was really clear that anyone who was a creationist was a stupid idiot and so forth I just said hi I just want you to know I'm a stupid idiot <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because I'm a creationist and even though I was indoctrinated in evolution all my life, when I first became a Christian, in my very first weeks of being a Christian, I uh, first read through the whole New Testament, then I started reading the New Testament a second time, and I started reading the Old Testament, and as I read Genesis, I thought, 
you mean there's I'm not supposed to believe in evolution and cavemen and I was I said you know God is this really how it happened and the spirit of God was very clear yes this is how it happened <laughs> and I've been a creationist ever since now I've read lots of books on the creation evolution debate and I'm sometimes tempted to see how well I would do in a debate against uh, you know some of the leading evolutionary professors on some of the campuses but nevertheless uh, I'm based on that because I'm a, I'm a creationist in basic, in, in my foundation, because it's a matter of religious presuppositions. It's a spiritual issue. Those who are blind will never see creationism. Those who God is opening their eyes will always see creationism. And the corresponding inevitable doctrine that we will give an account. Now, if you look at uh, Roman numeral 7b, about a quarter of the way down the page, I gave you a couple examples. Uh, one is from Acts 10 when uh, Peter is speaking to Cornelius, so the first time the gospel is being presented to a body of Gentiles. And the second from Acts 17 where Paul is speaking to the Athenians. And in both of them, he talks about uh, God is the judge of the living and the dead. And you cannot love people if you're too chicken to talk about the judgment to come. You know, there's a fundamental, clear idea in Scripture that the fear of man brings a snare. And if you're going to obey the fears in your heart instead of reality and choose to follow the facts of Scripture, uh, you're, you're, not, you're a hater. Don't let the world define what a hater is. Let Christ define what a hater is. If you're a lover of people, you will help them see the truth, even though the light always hurts your eyes when it first comes on. If you love people, you'll, you'll actually develop the social skills to, to, uh, to keep the relationship going and open while you help them look at very unpleasant, hard-to-look-at things about God themselves, life, and reality. If, it's, if someone's not saying, boy, this is hard, then you're not really loving them very much. If you want more on that, there's a great uh, book on uh, what's called Nuthetic Counseling by J.E. Adams called Competent to Counsel that will help you uh, understand why that's true. Now, <clears throat> point C there, all eight gospel presentations and acts include a review of the historical narrative of Israel. Now, I really started thinking about the missing elements of, of the gospel in the fall of 1974. This was the last one that, that I kind of began to understand. It really wasn't all that many years ago when I began to realize we never talk about the history of Israel. I, uh, uh, there is a book that we have by Scott McKnight called uh, The King Jesus Gospel that talks about why that's so important, although he uses the story of Israel, which I don't like using because if you go back to the history of the modernist fundamentalist debate, the liberals started calling it a story because by that they mean it's a fictional story. 
And it's become very popular now in evangelical circles to start seeing that it's a narrative. And there is a story that God is developing. So to call it a story, but we need to be very clear that it's an historically accurate story that all the facts happened. If without that uh, nuance, we got nothing. I hope you understand philosophy enough to know why. All right, now, I, uh, so I've given you in point C there um, about eight presentations of the gospel that are in the book of Acts and some verses that each of the presentation quotes from the Old Testament. And that's not even counting allusions and types and word pictures from the Old Testament. All gospel presentations must tell the history of God working with Abraham all the way through the early church. If you don't have that, you don't have a biblically Christian gospel. And none of the popular ways of sharing the gospel today uh, equip people to do that. None. Zero. Nada. Zip. Nothing. It doesn't exist. But study all the references I've listed there. Uh, if you want to go back through the series, we spent about four or five weeks on this point of the historical narrative of Israel. Uh, the first time we went through it and the scriptures on those outlines, you can always get the outlines from Stephen Leopold. I always put his email at the bottom of the page so you can email him and you could go back and listen to this whole series in more detail if you wanted to. Now, let's get into why. The crucial importance of the historical narrative of Israel, I got about uh, five minutes left and I'll probably cheat a little as I often do. Um, so, the first thing you need to understand is it's not just a matter of what audience you're talking to so that we don't bring this up if we're talking to people who don't know anything about history, who are uneducated, as most people today would be. Because Paul quotes the Old Testament three times when talking to the Athenians who have no understanding of the Old Testament nor background in it. And he and explains three very important Old Testament concepts that are necessary to come to Christ, to the Athenians in Acts 17. Second thing is the history of Israel includes many tributaries in a great river that lead to Christ and his church. And I've given you five examples of them there, and you need to trace some of the examples for them. Because you need to see them, they need to see that from all eternity, Hebrews 13, 20, God had an eternal covenant within himself, the covenant theologians call the covenant of redemption, and that through all the covenants of creation in Adam, uh, Noah, the flood and all that, Abraham, the Mosaic covenant or the, called the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, through all of these, God was moving toward the one covenant of Jesus Christ, because God has always intended to rule the world through one federal head and a race of people born of that federal head. And there are only two races ultimately in the earth, those who don't know God and those who do. That's it. And those who don't know God have all kinds of enmity towards God, each other, and themselves 
they engage in all sorts of self-destructive behavior and, divide, and have all kinds of lines of division between young, old, various colors of skin, various socioeconomic statuses, uh, various genders, you know, husband jokes about wives and wives jokes about husbands and, and uh, you know, look at the state of marriage in our culture. And those who are lost cannot keep any relationships together because they're full of hatred and enmity. And they have much deeper problems than an anger management issue or something. All right, so that's really, really important to see. So this, uh, the, the one I have in bold there, Israel, it's very clear, clear in Scripture that out of Egypt I called my son, and Jesus is God's son. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of Israel. Everything that Israel is about is, is fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, it's then handed off in covenant to the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, called the church. Not to the people who prayed sinners' prayers, but the people who are actual followers and obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have a marvelous, rich inheritance and mission and responsibility that they're supposed to share in covenant relationship with each other. And if you don't include Israel, then you're opening people up to be able to stay in, in what some people have labeled the radically individualistic approach to Christianity today, where everybody is their own little God, defining for themselves their own little realities, and choosing uh, the, to either not be in a church or choosing what level of church they want, not what level of church the Bible wants for them. And defining how they will walk with God and what it means to walk with God. And you've left them in their fundamentally lost state of being their own God. If you don't love them enough to take them through the history of God's dealings from Adam all the way to the second Adam, Christ. Now, I wish I could develop that more, but I'm out of time. So, that, if you look at all the way down, Roman numeral 7, D, 3, a people for God's own possession... Most people are not converted to a gospel today that says that it's very, very important if you walk through the door of Christ, then you walk into the family of Christ. Now, because thankfully we have all sorts of uh, different kinds of definition of family in the natural realm, uh, there's some modification of this, but it's good, you know, it's a good thing when you're counseling people who are courting and so forth to, to remind them you're marrying into that family to whatever degree of family life and definition they have. Uh, hopefully it's not one that would hinder you from uh, putting Christ and his family first. But you have many, many Christians who have some kind of God than, than my natural family then the you know patriotism and nationalism to to my country and somewhere down there uh, I there's probably some reason why community and church and stuff is so important but it's mostly uh, as a consumer for what it offers me 
and I choose my level of commitment and my level of whether how deep I'm going to go and how long I'm going to stay and 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 if I like the you know the style of the preacher or the style of music or the light show or you know it makes me feel good or whatever then I'm going to be part of it but you don't have the right to choose a church that you're going to be comfortable with God has chosen you for you about everything. You don't have a right to marry whoever you want or pursue whatever career you want or anything. You are to pursue Christ. And Christ will make clear all other relationships. In the, uh, if you understand the history of Israel, you understand the call to be a Christian is a call to be a part of the people of God and the people of God you should be a part of uh, have, are the ones that are the deepest, most challenging, most clear, most re- responsible, where your life has the biggest chance looking down through the next few hundred years of counting. Don't, like, don't look at things uh, in a short-term way. So, now, last thing I want to say is that that's something we call apostolic inductive hermeneutic. You hear John sometimes talk about the the apostolic hermeneutic. I wish I could develop why it's inductive and not deductive at this point, but I guess I could a little. Probably not. Uh, But in essence, uh, the uh, people who are deductive in their approach would say, we can only take those parts of the New Testament that specifically quote the Old Testament uh, or specifically give an image or specifically give us a Christological interpretation to various parts of the Old Testament as having any Christological meaning. But inductively, you, you would expand that and say, the, the way the apostles went about opening up our eyes to Christ by quoting the Old Testament, by using types and foreshadowings and image, those are suggestive of the approach. Go find the other 35,000 of them. And use the same principles they did and gave us in the 27 books they gave us of the New Testament. Does there, you get that? And that's what I mean by the apostolic inductive and hermeneutic. Anves used to ask me what I meant by that of your do back. And uh, look at uh, the whole Bible Christologically. And that's why the historical narrative of, of Israel is an absolute, you don't actually have a gospel if you, if you haven't taught them that. You haven't really begun to, you know, so many Christians have not even read the Old Testament and unfortunately have so many theologies uh, that cause them to, do, to actually throw away the meanings of the Old Testament and if you're interested in that subject, that's actually going to be what the Tuesday night Bible study at Wright State next semester is going to be about for the entire semester. We're going to look at all the various theologies that exist in contemporary Christianity that gut the meaning of the Bible. We're going to look at, you know, and, um, anti-supernaturalism, uh, materialism, evolution, some of the liberal theologies, then we're going to focus mostly on the theologies embraced by so-called conservative Bible-believing Christian, Christians, 
of what dispensationalism, antinomianism, dispensational premillennialism, and all these kind of things that you hear from the pulpit here. We're going to spend a week on each of those words and develop them with a lot of scriptures on Tuesday nights. And Tuesday nights is not just for college students. Amen.